All right. So here's what here's essentially what my the last like week and a half has been like. So starting last week, I was out at a client's and I was working and my kids, every time they get sick, it kind of like passes around. It's like ring around the rosy and then we all die. Right. And around Sunday, I started to get sick. Uh, the Sunday that I arrived there. Now that's the Sunday. That feeling you're prior. Oh, it's starting. Th- this is Sunday prior to election day, right? Mm-hmm. So Sunday and Monday, I kind of stick it out, not too bad. And around Monday, Tuesday, it starts to kind of sink in. Right after the election, start to lose my voice, start to get super sick, start throwing up, start coughing. Ooh. Yeah, it's bad. And uh, go basically the rest of the week like that. Get home Friday, late, late Friday. And I thought, well, I'm going to take the weekend and just. Hyper, hyper rest. Lots and lots of rest, lots and lots of water, lots and lots of good food. Try to fix yourself. Yeah. I'm going to kick myself back into gear so that I can be here ready to roll on Monday. So that's what I do Friday. What I little time I have on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Monday, get a super important call and I decide I have to go into a client and take care of something before I leave town. So I look at the uh, seats available and I find out that there aren't a lot of flights to Seattle anyway. So I go take care of the client and I get to the airport, fly over to Minneapolis, which is the only place you can fly out of Grand Forks. And I spend nine and a half hours in the airport trying to get flights to Seattle. We get to 1045 at night and it turns out we're not going to get to Seattle. There's just no way flights are not going to happen. So I call Rakai and I'm like, dude, I am exhausted. I have had four or five hours of sleep. I have been here for nine and a half hours. I don't know how to get to Seattle. And I, I just, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. And Rakai says, well, we got to find something. So him and I spend like an hour looking at every possible flight between Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport and Seattle Airport. Where did those two intersect? Well, it turns out Boise, Idaho is a city that nobody wants to go to or from, from either Minneapolis or Seattle. And so they have 68 seats available. And so I'm, all right, I'm going to go get on that flight. So I go hop on, on the flight to Boise. The problem is the flight to Boise doesn't leave until 1045 at night. So now I'm at the airport going on 12 hours. And I fly to Boise. And I land in Boise at midnight. Flight back out of Boise into Seattle isn't until 645 the next morning. So I go, like, lay down to try and get some sleep. And airport security guy comes and he's like, uh, excuse me, sir, you, you can't sleep here. You have to be outside of security. Well, inside of security, they have nice, soft little benches. Outside of security, they have the anti-bum metal benches that have big bumps on them so you can't actually sleep, right? So I'm, I, I, I try, can't sleep, can't sleep, can't sleep. About an hour in, I get some sort of sinus plug infection, something, and it just makes my entire jaw and my face just like, this crippling pain that I can't, I can't even, I can't talk. I can't breathe. I can't do anything. All I can do is concentrate about how much my face hurts. So I look to see if there's like a little shop or something. I can go get some, some decongestant. Well, there is on the other freaking side of security, right? So I'm telegramming Rakai and I'm like, I need to get something, you know, I'm, I, 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 I don't know how I'm going to continue living like this because I really cannot take this. So finally, after four and a half hours or five and a half hours, the security checkpoint opens back up. I'm able to get through. Before I actually get through the, the security line, the crippling pain goes away. So okay. I'm, well, I mean, yeah, this is, this is looking up. So, but I still go spend $17 on some decongestant stuff just to have on hand. I, I considered them anti-suicide pills because it was going to be, and I didn't take my own life from pain, right? Seemed like a good investment. 
So I get those. I get on the plane and I'm like, and thank God they had first class available. So I was, I was like, well, I'm actually going to get to sleep. Well, apparently everyone in first class on a six forty five a.m. flight wants to like have a social hour with the, the flight attendant, oh right? Oh my god, that's crazy! So like, every thirty seconds, the flight attendant is coming up, and she's like, "Hey there, uh, how do I? Uh, uh, you know, she, do you want anything to drink? Would you like a banana? Would you like toast? Would you like banana bread?" I'm like, really, what I'd like is for you to GTFO and just let me sleep, right? You know, so uh, so I, you know, it's a it's a hour or something. Actually, I. Entered the space-time continuum. I took off at six forty-five and landed at six o'clock, which is kind of cool. That's great. Yeah. So now you've had the whole day. I know. So I land and uh, and uh, or maybe it was I, I took off at six and we landed. I don't remember anymore. But I land and all I want to do is get in my uh, just get a rental car and get to the studio and sleep. And I pull onto I five and it is standstill traffic. And I'm like, oh, what is going on? And so I'm flipping through the radio stations. Turns out there's this huge car accident. Okay. It takes me three and a half hours to drive from the airport to the studio. And I finally get to the studio at like, I don't know, 10, 1030. And I just crash right onto the couch. No sooner does my face hit the, the, the cushion do I hear the deep rumbling voice of a beard going, hey, uh, Noah. It's, uh, you might want to get up because, uh, you got to be on air in 20 minutes. I'm like, ah, oh, that's painful. So I drag myself back up, go into the shower and I have been trying not to use my voice, uh, for the past couple of days for two reasons. One is because it hurts. And two is because I need to save what little of my voice I have left to do these two shows. So all that to say that big, long rant to say, uh, I, <laughs> it's going to be a fun show. Yeah, it's going to be a fun show and you get you know, late night jazz announcer, Noah, that's, that's what it's going to be. And the, the thing is like, I was, I was, I was talking to my mother and we're, we're going back and forth and I'm like, this is, this is why my clients hire me though. Uh, because mm-hmm. when Noah says Noah's going to get something done, I will either get something done or I will die in the process of trying to get something done. But one way or another, it's, you it's know, happening. it's happening. It's very stressful for your family, but it works out great in the business. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, you know, we knew about the the JB trip. What we didn't know, uh, f- family perspective, was uh, we weren't aware that I was going to be gone the week prior in Wisconsin. I didn't find that out until late in the oh, week. Yeah, that's rough. So Beard was kind enough to share his orange juice with me. So I have uh, I, I have I have orange juice and vitamin C that I'm going to be sucking down on the whole show. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 171 for November 15th, 2016. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show where the current hosts have taken off and been replaced by the walking dead. My name is Noah, and joining me for the first time, both of us here in studio, is Wes. Hey, hey Wes, how are you? Noah. How's it going, man? It's, it's, I think I'm doing better than you are. I think so. You know, it's great to finally be here in studio. Uh, I don't think we've ever done a show just you and I in the studio. I don't think so. Uh, we've done we've it done rem- remotely. Yeah, we've done remotely, you and I. Well, those are a lot of fun, so this must be even more fun. I agree. I agree. And, and hopefully... If all goes well and according to plan, I won't kill you by the end of the That's episode. Right. And Chris won't kill us when he gets back. Exactly, yeah. If I didn't wipe out JB, Ooh. that'll work out. Well, we have a super fun and exciting show, but no show is complete. No show can even begin without first saying hello to our Mumble Room. Hello, Mumble Room. How are you guys? Hey, Hi. Hi. Holy cow. 
That was great. We have a full house. Well, thank you, Mobile Room. And uh, yeah, if if you if you didn't catch if this doesn't if it, if my rant didn't make it into the pre-show this week, Noah is doing jazz voice Noah because Noah is practically dead, but I'm still here. So. The first thing we're going to talk about today is something near and dear to my heart. Anyone that has known me for more than 10 minutes, if you if you meet me on the street or we're having a conversation in a restaurant, the first thing I'm going to do is switch you to Linux. And after that happens, after you've been converted and after you are and a Linux assumed. user, You're, that's going to happen. Oh, it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah it just did happens. After that happens, though, the next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to give you direct communication line to me. So that I can continue to troubleshoot your problems and so that you can communicate not like an animal. And so I put people on Telegram. Mm -hmm. I have so many Telegram conversations that it uh, it would take me a year to uh, just get through. I mean, I'm scrolling right now, right? I'm scrolling. I'm continuing to scroll. I'm continuing to scroll. I'm continuing to scroll. I was just I have Telegram conversations with everyone. So if he doesn't respond, that's why. Yeah, that's why. And here's a great way to get me to not respond. If you send me like seven messages in a row, it's not I'm not trying to be rude. I just I literally like my brain does this weird thing where I'm like, I'll just I'll have to get back to him. Like I can't I can't process that much information. When the text start goes off the screen, I just I can't keep up with you. And then and then a lot of times I just forget. So it's not me being rude. I just I literally don't have have, from the queue. Yeah, I have I have uh, I have the memory fish of a I have the memory of a goldfish. Anyway, so besides you don't need to do that. That's what the great feature of editing your messages are for. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or maybe just, you know, composing a message one time and then sending it, you know, there's that. Um, so when Signal Messenger first came out, I was super excited because I saw this as possibly the only replacement for Telegram I would have ever considered. I am I've been very happy with Telegram and I've had no reason to want to leave Telegram, but uh at the end of the day, all of the security audits of Telegram have come back and said, we haven't found any problems with it per se, but the way that they tell us that they want us to audit their security leads us to think that there may be some security holes that we're unable to discover. So introducing uh, Signal. Signal Messenger is a encrypted chat program that not only does chat, but also does voice uh, communication, SMS, that whole, the whole nine yards. And it went through a crypto analysis and the results are in, you can trust it. Signal is secure. So the article from the register.co.uk says encrypted SMS and voice app signal has passed a security audit with flying colors as explained in a paper titled a formal security analysis of the signal message protocol published by the international association of cryptologic research signal has no discri- no discernible flaws and offers a well-designed and compromise-resistant architecture. Signal uses a double-ratchet algorithm that employs an uh, epiramal key exchanges continually during each session, minimizing the amount of text that can be decrypted at any point should the key be compromised. Signal was examined by a team of five researchers at the UK, Australia, and Canada, namely Oxford University, information security professor Cass Kramer, and his PhDs, uh, Catrill Cone Gordon and Luke Garrett, Queensland University of Technology PhD Benjamin Dowling and McMaster University Assistant Professor Douglas Stabila. So basically, they went through and they looked at uh, the this particular messenger 
And they said, yeah, it, it, it's, it's actually pretty secure. Providing a security analysis for the Signal protocol is a challenging for several reasons. First, Signal employs a novel and unstudied design of involving over 10 different types of keys and a complex update process, which leads to various chains of related keys. It therefore does not directly fit into existing analysis models. Second, some of its claim properties have only recently been formalized. Finally, as a more mundane obstacle, the protocol is substantially documented beyond its or is not substantially documented beyond its source code. Now, that's an important point. Mm-hmm. Signal Messenger, the protocol, the server, the entire thing from top to bottom, open source, open code. Yep. You can look at it. Look at it, modify it, run it. Right. So that makes me it makes it a very compelling product. Now, I tried it a couple weeks ago and I, you know, my experience was not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a crash a lot. Oh, yeah, um, okay. You know, and that was back when I was on Ubuntu. But uh, I, I the, the experience was definitely not as polished as Telegram. Did you try it on the phone? No. Because I think, you know, th- that's kind of like where they started. Like they had uh, Tech Secure on Android for a long time. And then they, mm-hmm. they had a different iOS app. And then they kind of made Signal and merged them together. And finally it's merged. And then eventually got the uh, the desktop app, which I think is a Chrome app, right? Isn't it? Really? These days. Um, yeah. Uh, so like I've, I've all come, electron, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's electron app. So they've come a long, long way. So that I can definitely see the desktop not being their primary focus, at least hasn't. Yeah, been. yeah. And to be fair, most of the time I'm on Telegram, I'm using it on my phone. But right. you know, on the other side of the coin, Telegram has made the Linux desktop client a huge priority for it them. Really, is a it's a very good client. That's what I mean. Honestly, I use it more because I like it as a chat program than I than yeah. as a security chat program. Exactly. How about well, you? Got- the, the desktop version of Telegram doesn't even have security at all. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's still encrypted. It's just oh, not- yeah, it's it encrypted the from the. End it's end not end encrypted. Version. It's it's from server to server. Like everything on the server is not encrypted. Right. Say what now? If on their server, when you, when you use the secure chat feature in Telegram, that's encrypted. When you're not using I, that, it's not encrypted. I was under the impression that the difference between the secure chat and the regular chats were the secure chat, the private key is on your device only, whereas the regular chat, it's still encrypted, but they hold the key on their server so that it can do synchronization. But, you, but the, the fact that you can edit it on, on both parties means that it's not really secured. Mm. Okay. Because it's on their server editable, so it's not yeah. really secure. And so that's just like it comes back like Telegram is the thing that I try to get my family on because, you know, at the end of the day, if we're spied on, that's all right. But for people, you know, that have more real concerns or more concerned about that, lead different lives. Sure. It's cool that now, you know, we could have even more trust in Open Whisper systems and Signal in particular. Yeah. Yeah. They have a choice. Anyone in the mumble room actually used Whisper? What do you think of it? Yeah, I, I use it, um, it. I used it when it was tech secure. Then it became Signal and then it combined Red Phone right, uh, into go. Signal. Thank you. And it's uh it's always really good, and it also could do te- on text messages for SMS on Signal on the the phone version. So it's uh it's really cool because it also gives you like a notification whether this this particular conversation is encrypted or not. Um, so like if someone else is using Signal but you're you there or you're using the SMS feature and they're also using Signal as their SMS, it will just automatically convert it into a Signal thing. So that's really cool. Mm, that is not but like what can, yeah, what confuses me is more like how do they have the keys shared between devices for conversations that are encrypted from phone to phone and then move to the desktop? Right, and it's an electron mm-hmm. app. It's like I don't, I don't even see how that works. That's a good question. 
But just to be one more thing, uh, it is really interesting to know that that Signal protocol is also used by Facebook. Really? Yeah, yeah WhatsApp. Their messenger. Oh, yeah, and Facebook Messenger. Yeah. yeah. And WhatsApp, yeah. It's too bad they won't let that Messenger be like it's. The thing is, when Facebook started forcing you to install Messenger, that's when I stopped using Messenger. It's like I'm, I just I don't play that game. Yeah. Anyone else in the mobile room use Signal? What do you think of it? Nobody. Well, I installed it. I installed it, but I have no friends using it, so right. it's yep. very difficult to to really convert them. The canonical uh, chat platform problem. <clears throat> And see, yep. that's the problem. If you don't have anybody to get on there, it's a little point in having it. Right. I, mean, I have right. I have Telegram, but that that got started pretty slowly, and I just met new people there. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, if you think about it, any social networking platform, any chat platform, any communication platform, really, what it amounts to is you're going to be where your friends are, right? Yeah. And I think that's why things like G Plus and Facebook have risen to such prominence, mm-hmm. and in Twitter, because so many people are already there. It just becomes natural. I mean, I remember back when I was in high school, MSN Messenger was the way that everyone communicated, right? And nobody used it. When MSN Messenger started to die was when Facebook took off because they had integrated Messenger. And so why would you you have friends on MSN when you could just chat through Facebook? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So, well, what's up? I remember the same thing. I used to be on Yahoo Messenger and MSN Messenger. Isn't it funny how we just kind of go rotate through chat platforms? Yep. I used yeah. to have everyone on AIM. Yeah. And then yeah. that died. Yeah. I- ICQ, like Jcore says, and IRC. Oh, yeah. I still have all of that pigeon and yet, IRC is still around, and we're still using yes, it. Yes, we yeah. are. Yeah, there's but a lot look, of... I never got on IRC until like three years ago. You know, I think that's actually kind of... It seems like IRC has kind of had a resurgence, at least in the tech crowd. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I was I was on the original ICQ. You know uh, why IRC has got a resurgence? Because Slack has an IRC bridge. Oh yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, yeah. That's 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 a big thing. And if you think about it, really, Slack is just IRC for 2016. Yeah, I mean, right. People who need web apps. Now, what do you guys think about Riot? What is Riot? I'm a huge fan of Riot and Matrix. Tell me about it. Um. So. Matrix is a way to do federated chat, so you can. It's sort of uh, similar to Diaspora, but for just a chat protocol. And so you have all these disparate home servers, and you have usernames at the home servers, which are hosted on a domain. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of federated in the same way email is. So if I'm at one server with my name, I can send to another <laughs> server with that name, and they connect to each other and start sending messages back and forth. Gotcha. And the servers store the state, and then you log into the servers using some client like Riot. Uh, that's really the biggest one, actually. You may have heard of it. it I don't know of many Vector others. Before they it used to be called right? Vector. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. But one of the neat things about it is like, they, they kind of build themselves as the, the missing signaling layer for WebRTC. So they support WebRTC kind of, you know, yes. uh, as a first-party platform. And at the same time, it's really, the signaling part really shines through. So it really is good at like, they have a lot of different bridges, IRC bridges, Slack bridges, sure. rocket jet bridges. And so like, it's a, it seems and the nice thing is you can host your own without having to deal with someone else's server directly. You always just talk to your own local instance, and then right. it goes out and federates with other people. And on top of that, it also has bridges for Slack and IRC. So, so you can have perfect. all of your conversations in there. Like a, you know, like a modern web uh, HTTP JSON-focused like, yep. bridge that can just t- glue that you can take between I actually like it more services. than using Quassel for IRC. I have all my IRC pumped through a Matrix Helm server. Oh, really? That's interesting. Which is super nice. Yeah, and then I just use Riot on like my phone or in my browser. I will have to try that. That sounds it's pretty cool. It's a, there's a lot of infrastructure you have to set up, but it's pretty nice once you get it running. 
So, so now, how do you have a setup on your phone? Oh, the phone. There's an app. So iOS and Android have a Riot app. Riot. Then you can talk to your own home server. So Ham Radio, you were saying that they are going to be discontinuing a lot of the uh, Google apps. Yeah, I heard that Google next year is going to be disabling the Google apps on Chrome, and so that means that the desktop client for Signal is going to be going away. Huh. Okay, that does not. No, doesn't mean that. Okay, what uh, does it mean then? Anything running on Electron can run on Electron because that's a completely different framework. It's Google is rem- is eliminating the apps that are inside of the Chrome store. So like they're like you won't be able they're to bundle, be able to install yeah. apps from there. Why why are they removing it? I thought that was a big thing part of the whole Chrome OS thing Chromebook. They're saying that the whole point of those apps was to be able to use offline. And they're saying that the majority of people who use those apps do not use them offline. So yeah. it doesn't really benefit them to even have that infrastructure available. Hmm. I see. That makes sense. Right. But if I go to Open Whisper Systems website, there's no download our Electron app. It's you have to download it through the Google Chrome store. So Yeah. But they could convert it more than likely. Like it, it's mainly that the, the the what they're just removing is the offline features and because Signal is a online only thing. Um well as far as like sending the conversations back and forth. Right. Right. Um it, it makes sense they could just switch it, but they're not that's gonna it's gonna be for at least another year. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Mosin, they're actually doing it. They're just gradually doing it. Mosenrath, you had a comment about why IRC is coming making a research. Actually, it wasn't really that it was making a research. Um, it's just that I can remember using it before the internet became big, and as things went on, a lot of people that were on, like you know, the old school BBSs and all that kind of stuff, if they wanted to keep in touch with each other, they ended up just sliding over to IRC because right. it gave them the same kind of setup as well. IRC, unlike, um, let me see if I can get the theme here, MSN Messenger, Yahoo Messenger, AIM, if you're not getting the theme, the theme is that they're all branded. IRC is not branded. It's just kind of there. It's sort of like, hey, it's a library. It's called a library. It's not Rogers Library or Verizon's library. It's a library. You go to the library, right? Sure. So it's the same thing with IRC, just Anyone had it, anyone could access it. The servers were all over the place. You just kind of went there. So it wasn't attached to any one particular company. So it wasn't a matter of, hey, I don't like this company, or hey, this company how, now has you know these flashy little ball things that wink at you and stuff like that. It was yeah. just kind of there. All right. Anyone else, any thoughts on Signal Messenger? So they conclude that it's impossible to say if Signal, uh, if signal uh, meets its goals as they're unstated, but what their analysis did say is it proves that it's, uh, it, it uh, satisfies security standards, and, and they add that we have found no major flaws right. so, in know, their it's, design. It's not definitive, but it's uh, kind of the first, the first ratchet if you, along the way towards yeah. it being trusted. All right. Now, this next story, as you can imagine, it has me super excited, and that is that the new MacBook – doesn't run Linux. <laughs> uh, so there was a gentleman that did a very comprehensive write-up in the Ubuntu subreddit. And basically, he took uh, his brand-new 2015 MacBook and went through and said, here's what I tried to do, here's how I tried to get Linux to work, and here's why it doesn't work. Basically, 
the um, the first problem is that you can't even get past the grub screen. So you can't even actually get Linux to boot. Ugh. Secondly, if you can actually get into Linux, the built-in keyboard and mouse don't work. Only the power uh, only the power key works to force our, uh, the the reboot. And he tried this on the non-touch bar version. He says that there's a patch for the 2015 MacBook that may work for it, but he's not obviously entirely sure. And he links to the driver, and we'll have that in the show notes. And the biggest problem is that the NVMe drive has the wrong PCI class ID. So Linux doesn't actually see it as a bootable device. So you can't boot off the built-in hard drive. Which, by the way, if you look at uh, Lewis Rosman's breakdown of it, they used like some fancy special connector that is, you know, only available to them and that particular computer. Mm-hmm. So you can't just replace the, the drive. The thing is a walking disaster. Yep. Another thing is uh, like the input devices, he was saying they don't work. That's because they're over the SPI bus instead of right. the USB bus. Right. So yep. it really is quite a different machine than we've seen before. This thing is a disaster. Yeah. I was glad to see that at least some of the people in the, the Reddit thread were, you know, th- like being like, well, at least thank you for sharing. Uh, right. I know, I know some people turned to the like, uh, you know, like you should have checked and like, yeah, probably if you weren't willing to spend that that money, check to see if it's Linux compatible, especially right. given like the history of Macs. But uh, it is it is a nice donation to the field of maybe we can eventually get something working. Sure. You know, and the thing is, is there's a there's a lot of chat in this in the subreddit about. Uh, well, actually, there's a lot of chat in general in the community of we need to be ready to accept Mac users when they come over to us. I think a certain amount of time should be spent on that. And then I think we should start focusing on the manufacturers that aren't actively working on these like one-off models that are just freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to, you know, take a Lenovo machine and swap a wireless card in it. It's one thing to open a, you know, the Adele and, and you know, put a different wireless card in it or put a different sound card or something like that. It's something entirely different when the manufacturer makes a totally separate hard drive that is barely related to what we know as computers. Everything soldered to one board or basically a system on a chip. Exactly. It's just the amount of time that I would like to see the the, the Linux community doing that for, for a couple of reasons. One is I don't know that I even necessarily agree that there are droves of people that are buying a 2015 MacBook and then wanting to put Linux on it. Think if you're in the market for a two. If, think if you're in the market and you're willing to make a compromise for a laptop that's limited to 16 gigs of RAM and doesn't have an escape key. You're probably buying that computer because you wanted macOS to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, I, I I don't know that that's a really valuable use of our time. But secondly, if we really want to take people over and we really want to be there for Mac users then they can sell their MacBooks and buy something like a System76 that's going to work right out of the box with Linux, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd be interested what you guys in the mumble room think. I think it's crazy that you have that 16-gig limitation on something so expensive. I mean, right? I have right? 16 gigs on a T420 from 2011. So yeah, but a T420 has so much more space on the motherboard and the chassis. You have to kind of understand what Apple's constraints are for their motherboard and layout of devices and such things well they're only getting one dim in there effectively even though i think it's actually soldered on but it's the capacity of one dim and one controller right so it's kind until of until they make 32 gig dims 
they're not going to have 32 but, gigs available. Yeah, but, you know, the answer that I've seen for that is that they wanted, they wanted to keep it smaller because they wanted more room for the battery. Exactly. But hold on. And that, that stands up to reason until they say, well, until we reach 100 uh, watt hours and then we don't want to go over that because the airline, the airlines wouldn't let you take a laptop on on a plane. And I, I looked into this. That's total BS. The airline restricts mm. external batteries over a certain oh, and I don't remember off the top of my head what it is. Ex, external batteries are restricted. So you can't, separate, you can't pack on your big pack of right, thousand batteries. Separate batteries you can't take on. And only that you can take that on carry on. It just can't be checked in luggage. Internal batteries, things that are inside of a device, there is no limit. So you could have if you can find a way to get a five thousand, you know, mm-hmm. watt hour battery attached to a laptop as long as it's encased Small in the laptop generator in that whatever it takes. yeah exactly you can take that puppy put it in a laptop bag check it in the baggage uh, compartment no problem from the faa so that's bs um now they might be limited to it to a single dim and i guess i can understand that the problem is that it seems like they had two lines the macbook air seemed to target the daily desktop user and the people who wanted light and thin right? exactly there where, where their focus was exactly i want a thin da- daily driver Everyday laptop exactly laptop exactly was. that seems like the appropriate place to put in you know 16 gigs of ram and integrated graphics and stuff like that the pro line has always been set aside for people that are doing more demanding tasks media tasks mm-hmm. uh you know well, what else do they have? I guess just media tasks. But people or that, development, you know, where yeah, okay, a lot of sure. Machines or uh, how much a big IDE? Yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess if you're running VMs, so I, I don't understand Apple's decision to handy. Well, I guess I, I shouldn't say that. I understand their decision from this standpoint. Even with as many MacBooks as you see at a conference, they still don't really hold any significant share of the PC marketplace, right? I mean, still under ten percent, maybe fifteen. Right, mm-hmm. the, they're the outliers in the enterprise, anyway, right? So, by and large, majority dominated by Windows, right? Mm-hmm. With Windows 10 no longer having a, I mean, as far as they say, no longer having a newer and newer version of Windows, they've lost the advantage of, well, buy this machine, it'll last you 10 years or whatever, and we'll just keep giving you updates. Now, Microsoft can make that claim, at least for the time mm-hmm. being, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, you look at tablets and smartphones, and they are surging, right? A lot of people, even diehard Linux users, make compromises and go buy an iPhone or an iPad. Yeah, definitely. So if you're the if you're a executive at Apple and you're sitting in your office and your primary task is to make a lot of money and you look over here and you say, we're selling iPhones out the wazoo and making bank on them. And over here in this department, we're still struggling to get a real grasp on the marketplace. Uh, Where are you going to spend your R&D? Where are you going to spend your time? Where are you going to spend pushing all of, of the stuff together. And if you look at the latest version of Mac OS, it resembles now more than ever uh, iOS, mm-hmm. right? So I think that there is a, I think there's a real chance that, uh, I, I think there's a real chance that what they're looking to do is migrate iOS into Mac OS, make them all one platform, let the people that are doing media production and all that stuff port all their tools over to iOS and use all that stuff. And then just then they, all they have to do is sell 
what they would call like an iPad Pro with, oh, wait, we already have that. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So it's just like at every turn, it seems like they're continually doing that. I'd be interested if anyone has any feedback. I think it plays into their history as well of just like, you know, before they went Intel, they had their own, I mean, not their own architecture, but they, you know, they used, they used uh, power chips or they used Motorola chips. And um, I think we just see what was almost more of a convenience or coincidence for them when it was like a large overlap with our x86-based PC marketplace. And I think we see iOS as sort of its own ecosystem, its own architecture. They're making their own processors or at least, you know, having them fabbed for them. Right. Um, so I think that they've always viewed their desktops or Mac OS, OS X in the same way. It just hasn't looked like it from the outside. But now, like, with more with their touch bar and with their, you know, the ARM chip sitting on their system on a chip right. as well, it really is, like, they see it as a whole platform as one thing. <laughs> and probably, yeah, it will form more into with iOS into their Mac ecosystem. Mumble what are your thoughts? Honestly, um, saying um, iOS is going to be better than macOS for professionals is... <clears throat> I didn't say that. Oh, well, I don't think iOS would ever be for professionals. If anything, any professional that I know from outside of Chris or Rikai or professionals I know personally, they don't use Mac anymore because of their hardware choices and their yeah. software choices. Yeah. They're like they're done. They yep. they've had it. If if Mac doesn't, you know, cater to them and go, look, we have these awesome machines for editing. We got this rock solid OS. You know, we're still working on Final Cut. If you don't grab those people, you're going to lose them. And yep. I don't see them doing that with their offerings. Yeah, I agree. They, we actually we had a we have a small production house in Grand Forks. Um, they're an offshoot of a of a local news agency, and they have switched to Adobe Premiere. Uh, on Windows boxes, and the oh, university, really? yeah, and the university first they dumped, uh, they originally dumped Final Cut Pro for, uh, uh, for Premiere, uh, and and uh, the new machines, the new desktop machines are Windows boxes because they support all of their PCI capture stuff, mm-hmm. and they have repurposed the they had like a learning lab and those had a lot of iMacs. And those have been repurposed for, with uh, Adobe uh, Premiere on on those iMacs, so that when those students get up into the the later years and they're they're doing because in, in your third and fourth year when you're doing journalism school, then you actually go do assignments, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're teaching them to do it on on these iMacs in, in uh, on Premiere because they already had these iMacs, and then they're moving off onto these Windows machines where they're, they're using Adobe. So I, I've seen the exact same trend. However, I of course. Being the Linux guy that I am, I uh, I contacted a couple of the guys that were teaching that particular video course at UND, switched them to Linux, got them editing all of their stuff under Linux. And now this year is the first year that they are teaching in tandem with uh, Premiere Lightworks. So it's it's going to be done. On, yeah, unfortunately, it's going to be done on IMAX because that's where the that's where the lab is. Right. But the right. advantage to those students is they can take those they can take that software, those things that they have learned inside of that class and take it home mm-hmm. and then they can edit there. So I actually haven't checked in with those guys to see how that's going. But, um, you know, at the end of last year, that was my that was my understanding that that, you know, they they saw that as being a really competitive advantage. So I, I have seen that I, I have I have seen that trend as well of people moving off of OSX. But I think what you have to consider is that there are a lot of people that change the definition of what a professional is. Right, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago, a video professional was somebody that showed up with a sixty-five thousand dollar camera and had either you had a studio camera you're recording inside of a studio, or you had an electronic news gathering crew, so you had an ENG camera. 
and you filmed, and then you brought that back into an actual edit bay. And you right, had, right. and you know, and you had, you had a, you had an actual hardware mixer where you took your audio, where you, you know, everything was recorded. You could tweak all that stuff in, you know, yep, live. Right there. And you do all of your editing, and then you produce it. and You take it to your editor, and then that would go out, and then that would get produced onto some sort of published media, like a DVD or yep. VHS or whatever. Gets master sent and gets stamped out. And- exactly, and we can send out right. Today, the definition of a, of a professional has changed. Apple sees a professional as somebody who films on their iPhone edits on iMovie and publishes on iTunes. Mm -hmm. The New York Times fired the majority of their photographers and gave all of their reporters iPhones and said, here, they all have 64 gigs of RAM. Start clicking away. I'm sure you'll get something that's usable. Does that qualify? Huh? Well, yeah, we, no, well, yeah, yes. But I mean, the, the, you know, there was a, there was, actually, I was looking, I was watching a, um, a thing on still photography and they bought a bunch of Canon rebels, mm-hmm. put them all on auto mode handed them to 50 people and said, go take pictures of the sport events. They had, you know, 150,000 photos, 148,000 of which were useless. And then they found like six that they actually wanted to use. Mm-hmm. But the cost to buy those cameras, give them to people, have them shoot was still cheaper than hiring like 10 real professional yeah, photographers. Exactly. So I think the definition of a professional is, is rapidly changing. I think people on YouTube broadcasting themselves are professionals. Right. And Apple does a good job of hitting that. Like, we have I, a pipeline and it's good enough for what I, you want to do. I completely agree. They put all of those tools in place. So my, my question back to you, sir, is, is, is it possible that Apple says they take all of the stuff in iOS and they just say, all right, here you go. Let's make, let's make these tools available on iOS and push those out to people. Just redefining what a professional is. Or are you still not seeing it? Maybe I'm totally off. I, I can say that they, the fact that they're, they're more switching to the prosumer grade. I don't think professional is really changing. I think more, more areas and industries are developing to become professional. But I think the vast majority of people who are like professional YouTubers are using professional gear. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think that statement is true. Like you, like you can use low-end prosumer stuff Uh or consumer stuff. But eventually, you will be going to Canons and other rigs and, you know, professional XLR mics. It's just the road to get there, pretty much. So, eventually, I think any kind of prosumer that's not hardcore, um, a studio or news journalist or anything like that from the past, will eventually want to demand tools from Apple, and I think they're just going to have to give it to them eventually. Indy Akers, you're saying that that you still define a professional photographer as somebody who can operate a camera in manual mode, and it's essentially second nature to them. Mm -hmm. Indy Akers? Going once, going twice. Thanks for the call. So uh, basically, uh, to bring this all home, I, I believe, I truly believe that Apple is uh, is is sucking it up on. The, I think they're sucking on the desktop and on the laptop, and I think that's a good thing for their business model because I don't think that was where they're going to see huge profits anyway. Right. And I think that the cost to continue to develop macOS to make it a competitive platform uh, was going to be high, and I don't know that they would see the returns that they're going to see on mobile development. Right. So right. I think it's the right decision for them. As a Linux desktop user, I have never been more excited because Windows, despite the changes that they have made, still suck, yep. and they will forever hold a 
a bad taste in everyone's mouth for being Windows. What do you What do you think though about the that new subsystem of theirs for Linux and and the potential there for at least like the developer side or sure. the content creator, right? Because they have the Adobe apps. Yeah, and there you can have both. I, I it did it does scare me a little bit. Um, I think maybe what we're counting on in some ways is there is that distaste distaste of Windows and the want for a real you know POSIX style system, which you get with OS X at least a little, and and obviously with Linux. Huh. I I I. I I guess I can see that I, I can see that being a threat. At the same time, I think that eventually the people that like to dig down and get dirty with the system are eventually going to want more. So I think right. they'll come over right. to us eventually. Yeah. And I think they're also going to just you know, being honest with you. I think they're just going to get tired of their computer crashing all the time. I like it. So uh, so this brings a lot of hope to me because I think that you're going to have people. I don't think Windows is a great place to be on the desktop. I think Mac OS is becoming a less great place to be on the desktop. And so. Microsoft continues to focus on and, and transition to cloud-based cloud services. First, man, they're cloud first. Exactly. And Apple is transitioning and focusing on mobile. So who's left to really concentrate on the traditional desktop? Linux. Now, Linux. If, <laughs> if, if the answer to that is, well, the majority of people are just going to have an iPhone, they won't have a computer, I can totally live with that. If my job revolves around supporting Linux desktops for people that work in in CEO positions mm-hmm. or tech level positions or something like that, and, and the traditional desktop keyboard, mouse, laptop, if that paradigm is is relegated to Linux, even if the even if the amount of people in that paradigm shrinks and those people have and, and the majority of the society has moved over to mobile devices, I can live with that compromise. I can happily live with that mm-hmm. compromise. I think I think there's some nuance there, at least in terms of where we're expected to do things, but along as long as things are currently shifted towards the, obviously you can do content creation in some domains on your mobile device, but I think as long as it's like, you know, there's professionals in the back rooms creating things and then, you know, we have all these other devices we use for consuming and interacting with them. Sure. Yeah, that's where I could, I could live with it that way too. So a couple of uh, so uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the uh, Super Nintendo on... Uh, or the uh, the new N- Nintendo Entertainment System that is going to be running on Linux. Linux. And apparently there is an exploit compromising Linux desktop. Um, Wes, can you tell me about this? Yeah, so it doesn't actually relate to that fun device. Uh, it's just kind of similar. Um, there's a lot going on with the uh, NES these days. So this is a uh, zero-day exploit. Right now, the, at least the one that was released, it really only affects like a specific version of Ubuntu 1204. So it's not something you necessarily need to have but basically uh-huh. there's a gstreamer plugin that plays these nsf files which are music files from the from the nes um and when you're using something like nautilus yeah it it, it tries to part like when you open it uh these files gets parsed by gstreamer and there is a there's a vulnerability in in one of these the, it's in the bad set of plugins for gstreamer and it only is in the 0.10 distribution not the newer 1.0 gstreamer package um but basically when that happens then uh, then you get pwned. Uh, but it's kind of interesting because these files, they're not like a, a regular music file, you know, broken down into samples. Yeah. Uh, it actually emulates a processor. Like it, it takes less space and the way they're encoded, right. it emulates a processor to then tell, and then it tells the processor, do these instructions to produce these tones and then it captures those tones and plays them, which I thought was kind of interesting. It is interesting. So not to, not to totally, uh, so first I guess I'll open it up to the mumble room. What do you guys think of this? You guys are so quiet today. You guys I mean, the the technology of the the emulating the the processing of it to create the sounds is, is kind of amazing because it, it more like one of the biggest problems with most emulators is that 
they're trying to reverse engineer it instead of trying to uh, try to create a hardware em- em- emulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one of the, the biggest things is like a lot of games that are impossible to play as an emulator because the, the hardware emulation that it, they're trying to c- c- compensate is more like slowing down the current process, the current hardware we have. Whereas this is more super interesting, but the, 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 the problem with the zero day doesn't really sound like it's a big problem, but it's, you know, it's going to get a ton of attention, especially like Ars Technica and stuff. Right. And it just, to me, it was more interesting really to, to highlight these files and the way they work. And of course, to be, to just to, just to realize like, you know, um, obviously this just doesn't affect newer distributions, but it's always good to be aware of parts of your systems that are taking vulnerable inputs, which are, you know, file system files and auto loading them or that kind of thing. Just, just something to think about. Anyone else yeah, from the people using 1204 should yeah, really upgrade. From what I saw, it was recommended to use a Raspberry Pi and put RetroPie. I mean, how does that compare? I mean, this is not really right. It's this. This is a difference between being an official product versus um, you know creating it yourself. It's like you you technically aren't legally allowed to download ROMs unless you own the game itself. So. Um, they don't, they're not losing any money from it, so they're not going to like technically attack anyone for those doing those things. But this is more like if you want to have like a, a set-top box kind of thing that's built for you and you don't have to build it yourself. But it, there's also certain games that can't run without proper emulation. So like if you're getting RetroPie, the, RetroPie is just like a distro that pulls all these different emulators in. So you're not really going to get the exact kind of experience. So maybe some games, like for example... This is not what NES Classic does because it's just the NES. But if they ever come out with like N64 Classic or something like that, that would be amazing because games like Banjo-Kazooie were taking flaws that were in the hardware of the N64 and making that a feature of the game. So they're impossible to emulate. So if they figure out a way to emulate the, the processor for the N64, that would be amazing. Please. I mean, I've been waiting on that a long time as well. Uh, Super Nintendo, I think, would be more exciting to me, or N64. I, I, I'm really hoping for the N64. In fact, when uh, I was I was joking with Rakai a couple of weeks ago, I said, when we talked about that little portable NES system, I said, I wish Nintendo would make a portable N64 system. I know, right? I would take that everywhere. I would. If I had a portable Game Boy-like device that I could play GoldenEye on, that would be ideal, right? And what uh, Rakai's answer was... He said, you have one. It's called your S6. And I said, they, they have that? And he goes, yeah. So sure enough, went to the Google Play Store, and uh, and I was able to download an emulator on my phone. And, you know, the great thing about my phone is it's on Ting, right? And so I have – I don't pay to download any of the any, – use any of my data because I'm on Wi-Fi. In fact, we have a special Wi-Fi network. That is at every location that we work at, and it, it, we call it the tech network. Nice. And it's, oh, it, that's clever. I like it. it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, there's no speed restriction, anything like that. So basically, any client I go to, I have internet. I have network coverage, uh, unrestricted, unrestricted network coverage. And so I can walk into to any of these places, and, and just my phone automatically connects. So basically, nice. what I need my mobile carrier to do is to provide me with basically gap coverage right so if right, when you're on your way between sites exactly so i had a, I had a nine and a half hour drive between uh wisconsin and grand forks and then today uh well over the past two days i actually i had to i was in an airport for well what ended up being like 
17 hours, 18 hours, right? And the great thing was I don't usually tether on my on my laptop. Mm-hmm. Usually I just have a dedicated little card that, that, that connects there. Card wasn't connecting. And so I was like, well, I'll just tether, right? Now, this is something I haven't used in a long time on my phone. My phone had a great sig. The laptop didn't. So I take my phone, climb up the airport, and set it on, like, the edge of the window. Nice, yeah. Enable hotspot. Ting doesn't charge me any extra for the hotspot. It's just pay for what you use. So you use 100 minutes. You fall into that bucket. They charge you for 100 minutes. You use one gig of data. You use one gig of data. And they don't care if you're using that gig of data on your phone or if you're using that gig of data through tethering on your laptop. And cell phone plans for adults. Exactly. Yeah. Cell phone plans for adults. Now, there was a gentleman in the chat room that asked me if I would send him a Ting SIM. So if you send an email to noahjupiterbroadcasting.com with your address, I will throw a Ting SIM in there and get that out to you. No problem. Ting SIMs I, as a service. Everyone. I am. Yeah, I am. This is not an offer for everyone. I just one person that like reached out to me and specifically asked. I'm going to accommodate him. I am not going to send Ting SIMs to everyone. But that particular guy, it's yeah, I'm feeling generous. So uh, you send me your address and I will ship you out a Ting SIM free of cost at my expense. And if you want to get a Ting SIM, you can go to linux.ting.com. It'll get you $25 off your first device or your first month of service. Or you can get 25 SIM cards. You didn't think about that, did you? No, I didn't. No, you didn't. But if you wait for the dollar... That's your whole business right there. Exactly. Exactly. If you wait for the dollar SIM sale, you could get 25 SIMs for free with your first month of service. I don't know if that's really a necessary or good thing to do, but you you could totally do it. The other thing you could do is you could get uh, $25 off your first phone, which for me paid for the majority of the phone because mm-hmm. I buy cheap phones. Exactly. Or you could get $25 off your first month of service. Now, between my wife, my son, my mother, and I, I think our average Ting bill is like, oh, and I have a couple office phones, and I think our average Ting bill is 45 bucks. That's I, so let, let me look. I'll tell you what. Not only does Ting have an amazing dashboard, they have an amazing app. We don't talk about the app nearly enough, but I can pull this app up in about 30 seconds. $27. Wes, will you verify, please? Yep. on the nose. Now, look at how many minutes I've used. Zero. Zero minutes. minutes. You know why? Because all of my calls are funneled over SIP. So I use a a program. It's just data. And then then you have the one bucket system to worry about. Exactly. Not only do I have the one bucket system to worry about, that particular bucket doesn't apply to me basically anytime I'm not in in transit, Mm -hmm. right? When I got here, as soon as I got here, stop not using minutes anymore. So linux.ting.com, get yourself something nice and thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. All right, guys. So let's take a look. I want to dive back into this uh, Linux Fest Northwest founder honored with uh, the community builder. Wes, can you tell me a little bit about this? Uh, yeah, so there's just a, there's a, an award called the Cascadia Community Builder Award, and it's you know it's meant to to recognize people in the, the Cascadia region, the Pacific Northwest, who have done good work building community, building things that people can feel a part of, building organizations that last, you know, over time that bring people to get diverse groups together. And so this is kind of, it's just a nice article over on opensource.com talking about uh, Bill, who has been the, the main founder and person running Linux Fest Northwest, obviously the home show here of the JB Network. Yeah. Um, so kind of tells the story back in 1968, the Great Northern Railroad hired Bill, then a student at Western Washington University, my alma mater, uh, because of his computer experience. Uh, Bill became interested in Linux and open source community in the late 1990s as things were ramping up uh, with another few other computer nerds. He helped start the Bellingham Linux Users Group and then from then started its Linux Fest. And since then, he's been he's been doing it. Uh, 
you know, he's he's seen a lot at other festivals around the area. He's known in the community. He's recognized by people all around. So this is just a great little thank you, Bill. Thank you for all you've done and some nice community recognition. That's super cool. Momo Room, how many of you guys are coming out to Linux Fest Northwest? I'm hoping to be there. Awesome. Anyone else? No idea. Paul makes it. All right. All right. Well, it's in April, so uh, start usually, thinking about it now. Uh, early May, yeah, actually. The, the money, yeah, money issues. Yeah, that, that's that's a real thing, right? If we could come up with some way to have some sort of like sponsorship to get people to uh, different Linux Fest, that'd be, a, that'd be the real way to go. Uh, you know, the other thing is, too, is I wish they would split these uh, Linux Fest, Linux Cons up a little bit. Because they, be nice. they all hit, like, in the first couple months. Yeah, March to June, right. you have scale, then Linux Fest Northwest, right. then self. Yeah, it just... Like, just it, immediately all in a row. Exactly, yeah. It just, it just, it just, it drains the pocketbooks of those of us that have to, uh, that have to be at all those. It's unbelievable. I'll be at scale. I don't know about LFNW. All right. Uh, so, KDE Neon users are requested to perform a full reinstall. Uh, Wes, what can you tell me about this? Uh, well, so it looks like it was just that some of their uh, package distribution servers, uh, it was possible for people to push things to them, right? So here it says a package archive used by KDE Neon was incorrectly configured so that anyone could upload packages to it. They have no reason to think that anyone actually did so or that there was any, you know, intentional compromise or that any of these packages are bad. Uh, but they do ask that for your own protection, uh, they've, they've updated packages. Everything has a newer version in the repo now. So if you if you do a reinstall, you'll get all the new packages and they've fixed that configuration and restored the server. So it's just something to be aware of if you're on Neon. That's crazy. Uh, what else do we have? Mumble Room, how are you guys doing? I haven't heard much from you. This would be a great episode for you guys to, to chat because my voice is just, uh, it's not great. Take it easy on poor Newick. Well, I mean, I don't oh, mind yeah. chatting at all. I just don't want to be rude when people are talking. Oh, no, no. Jump on We're following your lead, though. All right. So, all right. For, so for the, the about the, uh, the Katie and Neon thing, um, there, it's not necessary to, for, to have, do a reinstall. They're, they're suggesting that if you're worried about it, like for extra security to be absolutely sure, you could do a reinstall. Gotcha. But they're gotcha. saying that if you just do an upgrade once the packages are rebuilt, that it's, it should be fine. Do they not sign their packages? They, they do sign their packages, but it's more like if someone had access, like the, the configuration issue is that someone could just push the packages and they would be on the server kind of with like already allowed to be in. So like they would be signed be. by this process. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So the, unfortunately that, that doesn't solve the problem, but mm. uh, they wouldn't be able to like replace the other packages. They would be able to repl- like add their own extra package. They could kind of like, so it wouldn't be like, like having to rehash anything or anything like that. It's just more, they could put something on the server and then they could kind of like, trick a mega mega meta package to pull something down it's it's a really uh it's it's a really scary sounding issue that is not as bad as it is but could potentially be terrible so it's more like just be aware of it yeah it's more like let's get it get in front of it so it doesn't actually make any problems I'll tell you what else is terrible is the Internet of Things. This article comes to us from HackerBoards.com. Despite growing security threats, the Internet of Things hype shows no signs of abating. Feeling the FOMO companies are busily rearranging their robots for IoT. The transition to IoT runs deeper and broader than the mobile revolution. Everything gets swallowed into the IoT ma, including smartphones. 
which are often our windows on the IoT world and sometimes our hubs and sets are endpoints. Now, I have said once or twice on this show and on last that I don't like the Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. I don't like the concept. I don't like the name. I don't like the branding. I don't like anything about it. And yet there the answer now is, from what I understand, looking at containers to solve a lot of the problems that we face in the IoT world. So Canonical's IoT-oriented snappy Ubuntu core version of Ubuntu is built around a container-like snap package management mechanism and offers App Store support. This snap technology was recently released on its own for Linux distributions. On November 3rd, Canonical released Ubuntu Core 16, which improves the white-label App Store and up, and update service control, so, er, update, ser, update control services, excuse me. So basically, their idea is, let's take this really crappy world that we live in and try to use containers to leverage updates and security patches. And I think on one one on one side that sounds ridiculous because obviously from the world of our you know in the you, take, you go from the IoT world to the server world and containers are the new thing that's kind of viewed skeptically from the security angle right. um, where VMs are trusted or you know bare metal even. Uh, but but I think here the the idea really is you know you're using you know using a bunch of like the the snap stuff or you're using resin.io which is like a platform trying to use Docker containers on embedded devices. Yeah. Um, and I think really what you're getting is better you know a better understanding of what you of the build structure and a lot of these embedded devices right like they're you know they're using build root they're they're forking from existing open source packages but they're maybe not upgrading things they may right. not have great build pipelines or anything approaching that so I think this is just trying to take some some modern development practice modern you know understanding what your dependencies are understanding what you're built from in ways where you can then improve on that rapidly uh, to to hopefully at least compartmentalize and then establish right because with a container system you need to then <laughs> you, rather you, you know if you have a telnet system you know you have telnet running because you had right. to export the port for the telnet and you had to configure the daemon uh, more so than if you're just taking a fork of OpenWRT and sticking it on your light bulb. Bow chicka wow wow you nailed it yeah no uh room, what do you guys think fixes the problem. I mean, most of the problem is people aren't doing their jobs and setting the systems up securely. Right. So I think, I think not, not that this is the answer, but more like it's, it's one place they're exploring. I think the, their, their idea then is to, is to make that easier to do, have better systems to produce those artifacts, to produce, you know, end things without having to do things from scratch where you might not have the incentive to actually update things or configure them securely. But personally, yeah. I still like the separate offline network of things. That's my favorite. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, yeah but, but you're just complicating the, the the design of the solution to make it simpler and more secure. Kind of oxymoron there, you know. Well, I I mean I, I think I think basically what they're doing is they're trying to say if you're going to have something insecure, first of all, let's try to make it so that the people that develop the IoT stuff don't have to think about the security per se. That can be handled for them on a different level and be pushed out, right? And the second, so they're not thinking about it now. I agree, but that, but so I mean, if my choice is between an insecure Internet of Things and a more secure Internet of Things, I don't like Internet of Things either way. But I'll take more secure Internet of Things every time, right? And it may be that you have less of a service area that you, you know, if you're if you're responsible for the entire OS stack and securing it, versus if you're grabbing a base, you know, almost container hypervisor type thing, and then you're responsible just for your app and what it exposes, it may be a different uh, incentive structure. And also, it's more to be more specific that it's not just a containerization system like Docker. Snaps are 
are, are secured in a, in a more of a, ma- a, mount, a mount point that is its own separate thing that it's but it's also connected to other pieces so that you have benefits of basically both worlds hurricane uh Herndes? hey how's it going on correct me if i'm wrong but most of the iot in devices that have been insecure has been because people haven't followed best practices right and we're talking at the base level of the operating system. So I don't see how Docker is going to stop people deploying these devices with operating systems that have, um, you know, I mean, the same password on all the systems or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the same security certificate. You know, I mean, these guys are not following best practices. And I think that's the biggest issue here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's because it's, it's not Docker and it's more, it's the same thing of you want to upgrade your system. You do snap upgrade, you're done. Well, I think what he's saying is that if you, if you take a company that doesn't, it, it's, we have a human problem, not a security problem, right? We have companies that aren't taking security seriously. And if you think that technology can solve security concerns and you don't understand the technology and you don't understand the security concerns, that's the famous quote, right? Right. It's the issue of them being lazy and not updating it. Sure. But that's the same thing with all software of any kind. Okay. Fair enough. Minimac? Yeah, I more and more see that uh, Internet of Things has become a marketing pr- uh, argument for products. I don't see the reason that a coffee machine has to be on the Internet. So the real need and use it to secondary. And these are, in fact, the machines. They are, in fact, used for spamming other machines afterwards. Right, right. And that happens a lot, actually. You find that you find that you 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 run into a lot of these machines that like i saw a meme uh, a couple of days ago and it was talking about you know things like the in, the uh, the internet connected broom and stuff like that when you get to i mean th- th- there becomes a point where it becomes ridiculous right there are certain things that make sense to be connected to the internet you know from my perspective but even people like my grand my grandparents would have not understood uh, internet connected light switches to them that would have been ridiculous that you'd want to put your light switch on the internet so I, I have a hard time deciding where exactly to draw that line because what seems ridiculous to me may may not seem ridiculous to the next generation, and what seems perfectly logical to me probably seems ridiculous to the previous generation. But I, the, this idea that this idea that everything is is going to just happen in the cloud for us and talk out to the internet is kind of ridiculous. You know, I, I think it was William that brought up there is a you don't have to be on the internet. To have a connected lifestyle, I have IP-based cameras. They are connected through a, through their own dedicated switch. They have their own dedicated DHCP server, uh, and they are on an entirely separate wiring system than the rest of the house. They are technically networked, yes, but there is absolutely no tie-in to my normal household inter- network and certainly no tie-in to the Internet. So the chances of those cameras getting hacked, some even if they, ha- they could be the most unsecure thing in the world. Mm-hmm. The chances of those getting hacked, slim to none, slim to yep. none. Unless you're physically inside of my house and you manage to plug into that switch, there's no Wi-Fi access. There's no outside internet access. In, in a weird way, I kind of wonder if we haven't jumped a little too far with containers too fast. I kind of wonder if we haven't rushed it a little bit. I remember when containers first came out, I barely had a chance to start trying them before I started to hear people rolling them out into production. And in fact, 
I myself have rolled a couple of them out in production, and the only reason I was comfortable doing that is because we have services like DigitalOcean that that I can go ahead and try those things on before I actually have to go to a, a client's network, you know, or someplace that it, where it really matters. And you can set up a production ready uh, emulation suite. You know, there was a time when I was going through networking where I had to rent a Cisco stack. So I rented, mm-hmm. you know, a, you know, a Cisco switch and a Cisco router and a Cisco this, and it, you know, it was very expensive. It was a couple hundred dollars uh, for the week to access that what they call the Cisco lab, right? And I, I did when I was first setting up containers, I did the same thing by going over to DigitalOcean and using the uh, the promo code DO Unplugged. And basically, I was able to get a ten dollar credit, and I was able to spin up my first two droplets, my first two $5 droplets for free using their private networking. I was then able to build a virtual data center that I could test all of this stuff on. And I mean, it was, it was a total game changer. So come five, six months down the road, being able to walk into a client's uh, facility and say, yeah, I can do this with confidence. Yeah, we can go ahead and set this up. It was no problem for me because I had already tried it. I had already had a chance to play with this stuff and if it didn't work out, I just blew it away and I started all over again. Exactly. And I'll tell you the real key, the, and no pun intended, pun intended, the real key is when you pair this stuff with the YubiKey. Because now you're not getting root passwords emailed to you and they're always like some obtusely long thing that you have to like copy and paste and then you forget that you have to use shift when you paste into the terminal so it doesn't really paste and then it or closes. You're something else. Oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And, and then the other thing is, too, is I have this weird paranoid sense about me. I'm like, oh, the NSA is spying on me. They, they they, they've captured my, yeah, yeah, they've captured my email. Now, none of that. With the YubiKey, I literally add my SSH key, and then when I spin up all of my DigitalOcean droplets, I just check that little box that says, uh, you know, Noah's YubiKey around his neck or whatever, and boom, DigitalOcean spins and up. And DO makes it so easy to do that. They do. And if you use our code DO Unplugged again, you're going to get $10, which will give you the, you can get a $5 rig for free for the first two months, or you can get two rigs, or you could get a $10 rig if you wanted to try something, you know, with a little bit more oof to it. We actually spun up, when we were testing uh, SACOM 1 and SACOM 2, uh, we actually we spun up like super, super powerful ones just to kind of get the hang of it, just to kind of see what it would be like to, to work on a super powerful Linux rig. I think we did it more out of novelty than any real production requirement. Mm-hmm. So Linux, uh, uh, digitalocean.com and use the promo code DO unplugged. Is Christo with us or did he, he drop out? He's still there. Yeah. You, you got did you, did, is your, uh, is your connection any better, sir? It's not his connection, more like he's trying to set up push to talk and he's currently on voice activation. Oh, so, yeah. Got it. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, we'll, we'll let him sort that out. I, yeah. Kind of nice to have him here because, uh, you guys are super quiet today. Uh, so Wes, tell me about the, the end of the general purpose operating system. Uh, yeah. So this was just an article I saw that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, over at the blog, more than seven.net. Uh, and it was just talking about, and it probably is focusing maybe on the opposite end spectrum of the IoT. I threw that article in there just to kind of get this this topic started. Um, but what we're seeing at the, I don't know, when I when I started doing things on the internet, you know, kind of in the early days of Linux, not super early, but the early days of like web scale Linux, you know, you were getting your VPS or maybe a shared host and you were configuring things on the, you had an FTP account or you had a, you know, you had a whole open VZ server that you were then configuring. You installed <clears throat> Apache with mod PHP and you got your MySQL going. And, oh boy, now you got your web app running. Uh, but these days there's a lot of things 
that's that's not necessarily the level of abstraction that people are going for. These days we're seeing a lot more, you know, you have infrastructure as a service. You have all kinds of different intermediate sure. you know, service platform service layers. Uh, you have things like AWS Lambda where, mm-hmm. you know, you're not concerned at all or, you know, the, the whole no-ops thing. We're not concerned about what operating system is. Is it RHEL? Right. Is it Ubuntu? It all runs on Linux, sure, but... But for you, you don't, you know, you you write your Java application, it gets executed in your container or wherever, yeah. and then it runs. I want the candy. I don't care how I get the candy. Right, and I understand that. I mean, I even may support that that worldview when you're trying to build large scale distributed systems. But sure. I just wonder what it is that a success for Linux? What does that mean? Also, like, what does that mean in terms of new developers who, you know, maybe they start from the code side, but they want to start deploying things. I think in the past. Some of those people would then be pulled into the Linux ecosystem, where you're suddenly running Linux at home and you're converting your media center, and you're, you know like you get in the Linux culture. And if you're just using these cloud scale platforms, where yes, Linux is there, but that's not really never. You know, you make a Docker container where you, you know, you might you import Python and then you build your Python thing. Never is it even say the word Ubuntu or, right. or Linux on it. What, what does that mean for the Linux ecosystem and people, new developers, new people in that ecosystem who are coming to Linux? Well, let's tie that back to our original discussion about FreeNAS and BSD, right? Right. I think if you start to look at things in, in from the from the from the perspective of, I just want to put, yeah, I want to push the button, take the banana. If you know, if we look at things in in that sense, I like FreeNAS because I can drop an enterprise ready solution. If Linux becomes so effective at doing its job that I don't have to know it exists for me to get the banana. I'm okay with that. That actually doesn't bother me. And if Amazon can make a buck by customizing that operating system and delivering delivering an end of banana to a, to a user without them having to understand how how the banana got there to begin with, I guess I'm okay with that too. And so then to 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 go on from there, how do you feel about the uh, – how do you want to call it uh, – patriotism or, you know, to the to the kernel level? Do you care mostly about, you know, the experience? Is it POSIX-like? Is it – or is it a license issue? Like could you – could Amazon then replace their EC2 service with FreeBSD hosts or even a Luminous yeah. host? And would that change things for you? Would you – is there a community loss there? Does it matter? Well, I, I think first of all, I don't – I, I'm, I'm usually not aware if they're going to change something like that out, right? I wouldn't know. As, again, I'm, I'm, it's, it's a black box. I don't know how it's working. I, like th- I don't see that happening for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think that a lot of these systems have gotten built up on uh, the backbone of Linux, and they have ridden that train up, and you get a lot of people that are very, very comfortable uh, administrating in, in what they already know. And I'll give you a great example of that. It's been 15 years since I first sat down and was required to use a given server, a server operating system, right? When I first started out, mm-hmm. they said, you will use RHEL because that's what we use here. And that's, you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, I was formally trained on RHEL and, and whatnot. And, and, I got, and, I, and I got my start in RHEL, partly because I sought out jobs in that, in, you know, in that area. Right, right. But I, ever since then, I have formal training on RHEL. I have worked with RHEL. I've worked with Red Hat, the company, extensively. So when I go to set up a server, it is second nature to me. I just naturally want to use RHEL. And you see in the military, a lot of the guys that, that go in and they become very proficient with, with a given firearm, they own a very similar firearm when they get home because it's sure. what they like to shoot because it's, they're very comfortable with it. And I, I think that we have gotten as an industry so entrenched in the Linux ecosystem, in the Linux system. I think it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to ever back our way back out. And, 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 and so if you're going to go to something like BSD, BSD would not just have to equal Linux in, in a competitive advantage. It would have to far exceed it because you would have to have something so compelling 
that it's worth people to fundamentally relearn the system that they know. What do you guys think of the mumble room? In general, I don't think the general use OS is going to go away for a long time because, I mean, these cloud solutions are great and all, but even the average user is going to have to be on the technological level and understanding to be able to use these and have them work. And people who really want a general use OS to do whatever they want with as a playground, I think most of us in here and most people who work in IT and devs who like to tinker will probably always use one. Rotten Corpse, what do you think? Going once. Going we'll twice. always use. Um, I'll always use a, a you know general general operating system. I mean, yeah, yeah, totally. I'll add stuff like um, a Cody box or something. Sure. You know, there's definitely there's definitely places where it makes sense, but it's not a fundamentally going to change how I use the majority of what I do. Like, I guess I wonder, and I think that applies to most people because they are they're Even if you have uh, like, even if people switch, like earlier we were talking about how maybe the mass majority of people will switch to something like a phone or a tablet as their main system. That's a general operating system. Sure. So I don't really think that this really has much, um, you know, ground to stand on. Sure. So I guess I just wonder from the new user perspective and, and and maybe maybe it's like the the difference like you were talking about like learning rel and yeah. like even learning rel like even though it's an, an enterprise distribution it's kind of locked away in its own little tower you know you're on the command line you're using these GNU tools it's it feels more part of the community versus like these days maybe you could have come up and like what you got you got certified in AWS and right you know, you know how to administer the ACLs for network accesses you know all about EC2 sure and that doesn't I guess that doesn't feel the same in terms of you're maybe even accomplishing the same things, but it doesn't yeah. have the same heart to me. You know, it, it doesn't. And, you know, the thing is, it's we're in a drastically different landscape today than we were 15 years ago. You know, these days, when I started out, I spent, I, and I spent it out of my own money, too. Uh, oh, no, no, actually, no, I didn't. That's not true. That's not true. <laughs> I, I, I got a company to pay for it. But I, 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 I contacted a company and had them pay, I think it was like three grand to send me to official training to get trained on, on RHEL because I was doing this stuff for them. And I said, you know, I just, I really need some, some actual training. And it wasn't so much that I needed to learn how to do things. I think I knew how to do the tasks I needed to do. Really what it gave me was the confidence to know I was doing things correctly. These days, you don't have to spend $2,500, $3,000 to get that sort of training. You know, you don't, you, don't. you, you can go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and we will give you a great deal. Uh, to be able to use Linux Academy. And the thing about Linux Academy is they take everything in bite-sized pieces. So they work with your schedule. They take everything that you'd need to know, uh, and and you can do it on anything. You can do it on RHEL. You can do it on Ubuntu. You can do it on AWS. You pick the area of expertise that you need to know, and then you go through those snippets. Now, for me personally, I went through, when when RHEL 7 came out, I didn't need to go through you know, the basics of the Red Hat operating system, I'd been using it for 10 years. But I needed to know it was different between 6 and 7. Well, Linux Academy had a course for me. They had a course from transitioning from 6 to 7. And I was able to, in just a week or so, get myself up to what I would have had to spend five days plus hotel, plus food, plus taking time off of work. A lot of people don't constantly, you know, if you're self-employed, 
the cost to come here to do a show, the cost to fly out here, the cost to stay here, that that's not where the money is. The money is in the fact that I'm not working when I'm right. back in Grand Forks. Yep. How much money could you have made? Right exactly. Now? The cost in going to a training session is not the $2,500, $3,000. Really, that's peanuts. It's not the couple thousand dollars I'm going to spend on a hotel for a week or the food I'm going to spend. It's the time away from It's the time away from my business. And, and I see that dropping. Well, with Linux Academy, I'm able to keep doing my work keep serving my clients and at the same time stay up to uh, stay up to date on the leading edge of technology. You can get a professional grade education right there in your office. You can. And these people are dedicated Linux professionals. They're not just people that show up, you know, to, to you know, just just to collect a paycheck. These people are dedicated Linux professionals that that you know really have a passion for teaching Linux. So head over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and a huge thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Linux Unplugged program. So one of my passions, in fact, it, one of the focus of uh, the show that we are working on, uh, the call-in show called Ask Noah that we're working on, is uh, going to be small business. Small business is near and dear to my heart. And one of the things that fits in tandem with small business is, of course, Linux, because in small business, it's all about that ROI. How can I get the most return on my investment for the least amount of money invested So this article comes to us from ZDNet. Many small businesses with tight budgets are facing a tough choice. Stick with an obsolete operating system and remain vulnerable to hackers or spend a lot to install new gear. David Gerwitz shows how Linux can help preserve your investment while staying safe and secure. Earlier this week, my phone rang. I looked at the caller ID and it was from a neighbor in the community. Since I was writing, I ignored it. Next came a text from the same guy. Please call me. Like I said, I was working, so I ignored it. God, we've all been there, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Then came a succession of text alerts on my phone. I turned my phone off and finished my article. When I finally looked at my phone, there were a scroll of alerts, all from Fred. I don't know Fred all that well, but we often bump into each other around town in events. He normally seems like a cheerful, calm sort, but not today. I listened to his voicemail message where he sounded like he'd been crying. We're done, Dave. Don't know what to do. Expletive computers. It was a busy week, and it sounded like it had been generally desperate. I... I reluctantly decided to get involved. I called him back and said, hey, Fred, what's going on? You sound upset. Dave, can you come over? I think I might be done for. If there's if there's a chance, fixing computers is not... Or, sorry, this is back to him. Fixing computers is not my favorite thing, but I'd been inside all day, and so it would be nice to get out. So I headed over to his office. What I walked into seemed like a war zone more than an office. A cluster of workers were staring at a clunky old LCD monitor that looked like they'd seen a ghost. Here's what I discovered. Fred's service business has... 20 PCs, all more than a decade old and still running, you got it, Windows XP, where's a bell? This time, it was ransomware. This time, he wasn't going to recover quickly or cheaply. Fred was running Windows XP for a few reasons. His hardware was running solidly, and he didn't want to pay for a Windows upgrade. Remember that free Windows upgrade to Windows 10 didn't include XP? But he couldn't afford to buy new machines. Now, here's the thing. I see this... This is this is not a this is not a uh, an isolated incident. I see this on a daily basis. This right here. And if you're wondering why I dove so far deep into this article, it's because I, I first of all, I think the writer just did a fantastic job uh, really drawing you into his narrative. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is this story is probably 95 percent of our customers really rings true. They, they have reached the end of their rope. They don't have a, 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 a necessarily large budget. They have a budget. 
you know, I said we're not a miracle worker, right? right? But they have a budget, just not a large budget, and they don't want to spend, uh, you know, sixty thousand dollars. Well, actually, more than that. We 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 just did a bid for a a business that is getting all new machines. Uh, whole nine yards, and that's I think it was eighty five grand, and of course that includes all the network yeah, yep, infrastructure right, and installation right. and stuff like that. And they're doing you know, some we're pulling new wire and stuff for them. But, yeah, but uh, but and, and that doesn't even include. I mean, I'm sure it would be more expensive if we were buying those computers with Windows, right? Because these are no operating system. We're going to put Linux on them. This kind of client exists out there. So if you are a, there, there are two people that this story should speak volumes to. The first story is if you own a small business and you're running computers with Windows XP, you need to stop today. You need to go download Ubuntu Mate and you need to make it work for you. The first thing you're going to say is, well, Noah, there are some applications that I just have to run on Windows XP or I'm just very used to this. Not saying it's going to be a perfect experience. You might have some hiccups along the way, but I promise you a hundred percent you are going to have hiccups if you continue down this path of using a 15-year-old operating system and expecting it to continue to work for you. Microsoft isn't doing you any favors in that regard, right? The second group of people that should really take light note of this story is if you have it in you to start a local IT service, this is your client right here. You go find this person and you say for you know $50 an hour, $75 an hour, $90 an hour, whatever you think you can get, I will come in here and I will clean all these machines up. I will reinstall them with the latest version of an operating system for you. And I'll work with you until we get your business operating with acceptable solutions. If you are willing to do that and you're willing to stick with it, you know, and, and I sat just last week, sat in a boardroom across from a, uh, you know, a very demanding client. And he looked right at me. And when I told him, we're going to wipe these machines, we're going to wipe windows off them. We're going to put Linux. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, it was not, I was not met with, uh, you know, Oh, that sounds great, right? He wasn't very happy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just you stick on your guns and you say, this is why we're doing it. And I, I, have, a, I have a proven track record in the last 10 years exactly. of, of doing this. And we have successfully served clients. We can successfully serve you. But you need to trust us on this. You need to let us go forward. You need to let us do this. And this is why. And here are the competitive advantages. You will make so much money off of doing stuff like this. It's not even funny. Mumble Room, what do you guys think about this? I definitely think that's a good service to have and people should be jumping up on that because they really do need to move away from XP. It seems to me yeah, like a, a good value add that the community, you know, like where maybe open source plays well, where a commercial solution wants to wrap it all up. They want to sell you the support, but where open source solutions open up is a good business opportunity for people who like open source, who contribute, who support it, who can then go out in the agency and one, evangelize, and then two, maybe provide support, sell support that can then, you know, foster the community. What do you guys think? It'd be it'd be a great option for if there was like a community project that would do a service, but provide like you still have to pay for it, but you're paying for support, and the people who are committing to the project are getting paid from that in certain ways. So it's more like you're com- you're contributing to help the community, help people come to the community, and th- that would be awesome. Um, but there's actually there's people who are still using XP and continue to use xp regardless of having de- dealing with stuff all day like there is one this is just an anecdotal story but there was someone i was talking to a company that was potentially becoming a, was going to become a client for mine but they decided that um they didn't they, they didn't realize they didn't think that they were a big risk so they're going to keep using xp um 
And I refuse to let them keep using XP as, as everywhere because they wanted to do it where every every system was XP and their server was XP and everything, absolutely sure. everything's XP. I wanted to get, like give them uh, a Linux everywhere, but an XP VM for the people who are going to use it so I could keep them off the internet. And, and since the XP is not online, it's not a big deal. Uh, but they refuse to do that. So I have uh, one person who works there who sends me messages at least three times a week or so uh, complaining about something going wrong where their their computer completely crashes or you know the server getting infected even though supposedly that's impossible as they say but if we could actually provide them a community or a service or something that would give them you know a semblance of support and they weren't they're not going into like oh we're switching completely and it's up to us to figure it out right how many business owners want to spend hours on google trying to figure that out when they really just need to to get it done and if they have a resource that they can maybe support financially or you know whatever you need to do to make that work where it feels like you know they're doing it as part of community maybe it helps put uh you know businesses together who have done that so that they have people to talk to talk about how the transitions went problems Mm -hmm. with training all that stuff that's a part of a Good. Whoop, go ahead. No, good. I was a part of a local IT business uh, that that totally missed this boat. Um, I had been railing on them to begin supporting Linux in any form um, from day one that I arrived there, and I spoke to several clients about you know oper, oper, switching their operations over to Linux and and finding solutions that worked. And this was five six years ago, um, and now the local IT business is dead. And those clients are looking around. I guess they they have nothing to fall back on uh, because this was this was a business that developed when doing hardware repairs was easy money, and you could actually make you know a fair living at just repairing the boxes. And I could not get this business to look bigger, to look smarter at what was going to happen in the next five years with the hardware becoming essentially unrepairable because Joe Consumer was buying tablet-related machines more so than laptop or desktop-related machines, and they weren't looking at the commercial market. So there's my sob story of, of sure. an IT business that totally missed the boat. Mosenruff? Uh, yeah, just give me a second here. I got the link for you. It is a company called... Sorry, there's a company that is inside of Toronto where I'm located called Free Geek Toronto. What they do is they take old machines and they convert them over, get them back up and running, and they always throw Linux on it. Sometimes they give them out for free. Sometimes you can buy them. Here's the link here. Now, the reason why I'm bringing them up is because there's a lot of companies which are out there right now that are in the, hey, we're just going to remake this machine business. Now, if more of them actually provided setups with Linux on it, which would mean that they wouldn't be paying as much towards the um, the operating system. They could always, you know, donate that to the people that are making the operating system. You know, more people would be actually willing to try it out because a lot of people who are, you know, making the decisions about the computers at the workplace, they're going to have Windows at home yep. or they're going to have Mac at home. Yep, right. So if they start off with Linux at home, say Linux and Windows like what I have, all of a sudden you're no longer as afraid to sit there and try out Linux at the workplace because you already know, hey, this is what it can do, this is what yep. it can't do, so on and so forth. And I've actually converted businesses doing exactly that. Rotten Corpse. I like the idea of providing machines to people so that they have the transition 
from work to, to home. And I also like the idea of giving them, uh, you know, a service that provides them with the free equipment to make it easier for that transition. But I don't like the idea of these free equipment. There's been, there's multiple plate companies that do this. I know of one, uh-huh. one that Mosenrath mentioned in Toronto. I know of one in the UK and they all do the same thing. They take these really terrible hardware that, well, Linux can run on this old hardware. Yes, it can, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a good experience. Right. It's probably going to be an awful experience because it's awful hardware. Linux deserves good hardware. You'll get even more value out exactly. of it. Exactly. Like when, when they use something that's good, that's fantastic. When they use them, they, they're given something that's terrible, they're just going to blame Linux and not the hardware because they have no idea. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for the Mumble Room for joining us today. We really appreciate it, as always. A special thanks to Michael Donnell, our producer and show screener. Mitt Free, the man who keeps our Mumble Room up and running. Rakai, our chief editor and all-around in-house genius. And the entire team here at Jupiter Broadcasting. Linux Unplugged airs live on Tuesdays, 2 p.m. Pacific time. You can keep an eye on the schedule of this show and every other show at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We look forward to seeing you right back here next week. There's an article here from ModZero uh, on, on modzero.github.io, and it is, with the release of Microsoft Windows 10 operating system, several innovations have been introduced into the market regarding privacy settings. What is normal? Uh, what is a normality with Apple, since long apparently has been accepted by OS X user, now has finally become a reality for Microsoft users. The analysis of the user data and behavior of the U.S. American creator of software. Over time, more users published instructions on how to break Microsoft's habits of spying on their users, including uh, private users whose computers are not part of a company or enterprise domain. I was annoyed that this uh, that this leads to manually clicking check marks on a graphical user interface or running confusing PowerShell scripts that merge with several several single rule sets. So I don't know if you guys have seen this article or not, um, but it it basically uh, it my understanding is that there is a it is a it is basically a how-to guide on how to fix windows 10 to be more privacy respecting is that right Wes? well even better than that it's uh like a something you can install that will do it for you oh took um took a bunch of other guides tips on how to do it best practices that have emerged and then made a tool that will just apply that for you you know so if you don't really want to get into powershell scripts or modifying sure. the registry or who knows what uh Here's something that will purportedly do it for you. I haven't tested this myself. I don't have um, Windows 10 at home, but I know a lot of people do. You know, maybe you have it for gaming or something else, or your spouse is using it, and this might be something just to help uh, make it more like you're used to. Oh, that's awesome.